Well, hey, good morning again, New City. If you're just logging on, my name is Ben Harris. I'm the pastor here at New City. And it is great to be with you again this morning and just open God's word together. Um, let me invite you, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we will be spending our time together. Um, if you were with us last week, we did have an awesome time just celebrating Easter together and, and just praising God over the truth, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus a literal, true, historical event that Jesus is no longer dead, that he is alive. And we talked a little bit about how incredibly important that reality is and how important that reality is to our faith. Um, 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen puts it this way, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. But because Christ has been raised, it is everything and it undergirds everything that we believe about who Jesus is and what the Bible reveals to us to be true. Um, kind of two groups of people that I assume anytime that I'm speaking to, but particularly this morning, maybe you are somebody who you have heard about Jesus. You have heard about the Bible and you're still investigating, is it true? And what relevance does God and his word have to my life? I hope that this morning's message would speak to you particularly as we want to answer some of those very practical questions. But secondly, maybe you are a believer already and you just simply want to understand how better can I express the faith that I have? And in particular, when people have questions about why do you believe what you believe or specifically, why do you believe the Bible to be true and what the Bible says to be true, to be able to give a faith-filled, specific and intelligent answer to those questions. Again, I hope that this morning's message would speak to you particularly. Um, this morning is a pretty unique Sunday. And so I'm excited to tell you that this sermon that I'm going to share with you this morning, the vast majority of it, I actually did not write. Um, today's message comes from a sermon by a, a man by the name of Pastor Vody Bauckham. And this is a sermon that he has shared really all over the world. It's a very powerful word. And he does it so well that I just wanted to bring to you really his words from the word of God this morning. Now, if you haven't heard of Vody Bauckham before, um, he was previously pastor at Grace Family Baptist Church in Spring, Texas. And in the last couple years, he and his family have felt God's call and they've actually moved to Africa where he is now the Dean of Theology at African Christian University in Zambia. Um, I first heard this message in its entirety a number of years ago when I was a Christian school Bible teacher and I listened to it together with my students and all of us found it just incredibly challenging, uh, convicting, thought-provoking, but really very equipping not only to understand why we believe what we believe about the Bible and the truth in it, um, but also to equip us to be able to share that aspect of the good news with people who don't yet know it or who have not yet heard it, to be able to answer those kind of questions. Um, Vody would say to you, and I would agree with you this morning, that one of the most important questions that as a believer that, that we have to answer um, in our own hearts and minds before the Lord, but also in conversation with people is this, why do I choose to believe the Bible? Why do I choose to believe the Bible? So with that, let me open us in a word of prayer as we head into Second Peter. Father God, Lord, Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your word, the Bible, really is 
the word of God from you to us. Lord, we thank you that it is reliable, it is trustworthy, and God, we thank you also that Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection are true, that they are real, and we cling to those realities as the very substance of our faith that gives us hope and joy in any and all difficult circumstances. And so, Father, would you afresh place our eyes on you, Father, let our hope be in you. And would you teach us and grow us and draw us near to your heart this morning as we look into your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a lot of conversations with Christians will begin um, with a question like this. Um, so what do you believe about such and such a topic? What, what are your beliefs about this area or this specific area? Um, and the follow-up question to that is usually, well, why do you believe that specific thing that you believe? And uh, typically, our answer as believers, at least in the beginning, will be something like this. I believe that because the Bible tells me so. And while that is a valid answer in and of itself, it is not necessarily enough. And we can sometimes say that and, man, feel so proud. Like, I've just said something so profound. I believe it because the Bible says it. Well, yes, but somebody who's not coming from that place is going to have a follow-up question that sounds something like this. Why do you believe what the Bible says about that? And for a lot of believers, for a lot of Christians, that right there is game over. Right? Well, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Um, or they come to the place where typically there's sort of one uh, or, or two fallback answers that we will, we will run to as our response to, well, why do you believe what the Bible says about whatever topic you might be discussing? We're going to talk about these first and we're going to refer to these as two bad arguments for why I choose to believe the Bible. Bad argument number one, taking notes, I believe the Bible because that's the way I was raised. Believe the Bible because that's the way I was raised. Uh, Vody Bachman, in his sermon, he just says, stop it. Stop right there. Ask the Lord for forgiveness. He'll forgive you and don't do that again because that in its, of itself is not a complete answer. If you think about it, the problem is that many of the things that we were raised on, we come to discover over time that maybe they weren't actually true. And that's a pretty universal experience. Um, parents, this doesn't mean that you should quit discipling your children. Not at all. Quite the opposite. What it means is their faith should not be built in you, but rather your children's faith should be built in Jesus and in his word. The problem is this. What if someone else was raised with a different experience um, in a different way. If that's your only argument uh, because I was raised that way, well, those two realities kind of cancel each other out on their own, right? Who, who is right? My wife, uh, Alana, and I, we both really like um, cupcakes. Very early on in our relationship, um, my wife grabbed us some, some cupcakes and she said, you know, uh, how do you like the Jimmys on there? And I said, Jimmy? Who's Jimmy? Right? Um, I had no idea what she was talking about when she asked, did I like the jimmies, the little things that were on the cupcake? I said, you talking about those? Oh, no, 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 no. Those are sprinkles. She said, oh, no, no, no. Let me correct you. I was raised that these are called jimmies. And I said, well, I was raised that these are called sprinkles. Now, this is obviously a trivial matter, but you can see that just simply using the foundation of I was raised that way, I was raised this way, isn't enough to establish the reality now, obviously, I'm right, and there's sprinkles, but that's beside the point. Um, 
you know, what if it's something that's even more important? What if it's not something as earth shattering as sprinkles, but it's dealing with the realities of what we believe to be true now and eternally? You know, what if you were raised to believe that there's no God? Or you were raised to believe that uh, in pantheism, that, that everything in a sense is God. Or you were raised to believe that the God of Muhammad is God. The question here is, is it true? Not simply, were you raised that way? So believers, that in and of itself is a lousy argument. That's number one. Number two, bad argument number two is this. I believe the Bible because I tried it and it worked for me. I believe the Bible because I tried it and it worked for me. This is a very popular one, especially now in, in the age of experience. Um, the younger generation will love this answer um, because many young people believe that the only thing you can know for certain is that which you have actually experienced yourself. See, it branches out of the same uh, fallacy that what's true for you is not necessarily true for me. Now, many Christians do have a very real testimony, and part of it is, I tried it, and it worked for me. But don't stand there and think, just because I've said that, that I've said something in and of itself of real substance. I tried it, and it changed my life. Yes, that's true. You know, you could say, I used to be such and such a thing, but now I'm not. I tried it, and it worked for me. Yes, that's part of your testimony. It's powerful. It's valid. But as Vody Bauckham says, by itself, this opens up a huge logical uh, fallacy hole that you can drive a Mack truck through in and of itself, just simply based on your personal experience. For example, think, you know, there was a guy who'd been an alcoholic for 10 years and he went to an AA meeting and they said to him at this AA meeting, you know, you need to find your higher power. Well, he went around, he looked around for a higher power. He couldn't find one till he went home. He decided that the squirrel outside of his window was his higher power. He hasn't had a drink since. He tried it and it worked for him. What is your argument there? See, according to our own logic, the squirrel has as much authority as the Bible that we believe in when we say the only reason I believe the Bible is because I tried it and it worked for me. So you may be now at this point already saying, well, great, you just took away my best two answers. You better give me something better than that. Um, let me just encourage you with just a piece of uh, Pastor Bauckham's testimony. He tells us, um, he says, I was raised in the projects of Los Angeles by a single teenage mother. Um, I don't believe the Bible, he says, because I was raised that way. He says, because I wasn't raised that way. He said, my mom actually grew up in church, but for the first time, she found some people that lived authentically that were believable and were encouraging to her when she visited a Buddhist temple. She tried it and it worked for her. So Vaudi says, I don't simply believe the Bible because it works for me or because I was raised that way because that wasn't the case in his experience. He says, I was first exposed to the gospel, the truth of the Bible in college. And six months after I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, having examined the scriptures and come to true believing genuine faith in them, he says he actually had the privilege of sharing the good news of the gospel with his mother. And she too became a believer in Jesus. Here is, though, the answer that he began to develop as to why I choose to believe the Bible. Take a look at the screen here. I choose to believe the Bible 
because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Now let me show you where he got this from because Vodi uh, borrowed this idea from somewhere far more powerful. You know, Pastor Charles Spurgeon from back in the day says this, you have no more need to defend the Bible than you have need to defend a lion. What we're looking at here is actually from an argument that Peter, the apostle Peter, who wrote 2 Peter, made when the early church was really pushed on some of these exact same questions. So let's look at this text of scripture this morning. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read for you verses 16 through 21. Peter, inspired by God, writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as we begin, we're going to look at each element of this statement that is derived from 2 Peter chapter 1. Number one, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents. You know, we talk about the Bible as a unit And it is a unit, but this Bible, this unit that is the Bible is also actually 66 individual books going from Genesis in the Old Testament all the way to Revelation at the end of the New Testament. 66 books written by over 40 authors over a period that covers more than 1,500 years, written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic covering over 23,000 archaeological digs, digs that in more recent times have been related to different historical aspects of the Bible. And you know what? Not one page has ever been disproven. If there was, you know you would have heard about it. You would get prime time coverage if there was some way that we could attack the Bible. People who are grasping at straws, um, trying to undermine the historicity of this book. Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke, puts it this way at the very beginning of his book. Take a look at Luke chapter one with me. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." 
eyewitnesses who had compiled an orderly account, says Luke, of actual things that actually happened among us so that, so that you can have certainty. That is what we have in the Bible. So 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It continues on, number two, written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Again, written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Second Peter 1.16 finishes, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, Alana and I have been watching recently a detective show um, called Bosch. Now, in that detective show, what would completely ruin the show for us right off the bat is rather than presenting the problem, the question, the mystery of who done it and what's going to happen, if at the beginning of the very first episode, they brought out 30 to 40 witnesses who tell us the exact same story of exactly what happened, what would we have? Well, we wouldn't have much of a mystery, would we? All the mystery would be gone. All of the drama would be gone. That's exactly what we have here in the scriptures. Put it another way, drive down to any local jail, find any person who is there and ask them this question. Would you be here in this place if 30 to 40 eyewitnesses from three different continents who spoke three different languages could verify the veracity of your alibi? They would say, man, if there was even one person who could verify my alibi, well, then I wouldn't be here. Enter 1 Corinthians chapter 15. No one challenges that 1 Corinthians was a book written about 50 AD. So Jesus' death and resurrection, 33 AD. Now here we are soon after in 50 AD. Listen to what the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, then to the twelve, meaning the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning that they have passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Me, again, meaning Paul. So by the time of this being written, there are at least 300 of those 500 eyewitnesses who are still alive when 1 Corinthians in 50 AD is being written. Now, most of us have probably heard of something called the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code was a book, a mystery thriller written by Dan Brown about 2003. Um, I was in college when this book, this thriller came out. And the idea that this book and others that have followed it, that it supports is the idea that the Bible that we have today is not reliable Because the later Christian community would have changed it and added in things like the miracles and added in the idea that Jesus is God and deified Jesus when in fact originally, supposedly that the Bible said completely different things. Okay, so what is the Da Vinci Code based off of? It's based on absolutely nothing. It's based on no evidence, no historical evidence of any kind. It is based on their presuppositions against the idea that the word of God actually could be the word of God. 
there's really two specific arguments that the Da Vinci Code and books like it will bring up as it relates to the Bible and this idea that the Bible changed over time. And I want to look more specifically here now at both of these arguments. Argument number one that they will bring forward is the multiple translator argument. Okay, and this is a favorite of college professors. Um, and what they'll do is they'll use uh, the game of telephone as an example. Maybe you remember playing telephone as a kid or you just played it yesterday. And the idea with telephone is you get a circle of maybe 10 people and the first person will whisper into the ears of the second person some sort of a message that no one else can hear. And then they'll pass that word down from person to person to person and make it around the circle. And these college professors will so wisely point out that by the time you get around the circle, what has happened to that message? Well, it's completely different, right? If you play the game well, you know that the first message, by the time it gets around, has completely been distorted because it passed from person to person to person. And so the argument is this, as it applies to the Bible. The Bible has been translated so many times that it's no longer reliable. Maybe you've heard that argument even in the last several weeks. This is a dishonest argument. Here's reality. Think about this. It does not matter how many times the Bible has been translated. It would only matter if they were translations of translations. That would be the scenario where we're going around the circle. So for example, they're saying if the English Standard Version, the ESV that we preach from here at New City and many churches use, if the ESV was a translation of the NIV, and then the NIV was a translation of the New King James Version, and then the New King James Version was a translation of the NASB, the New American Standard Version, that would be the issue. However, guys, hear me. This is not the case at all. The argument of playing telephone around a circle is completely misplaced because every time you translate the Bible, every time we have translated the Bible, we go back to the original, to the earliest manuscripts. We go back to the first person in the circle if you follow that argument. So this argument is either ignorant or it's evil or it's both. It is not a valid argument. Every translation is a translation of the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic manuscripts. That's argument number one. Argument number two is this. It's what we call the overzealous monk argument. Okay, and that's the idea that some overzealous, passionate monks went in and changed all the documents and made all the different versions of the Bible match up to say what they wanted them to say. This begins as they look at the, the theory that Emperor Constantine told the Council of Nicaea that took place in 325 AD that they were limited to only 66 books and that they had to leave out any other books that they were confined to the number 66. And those accepted 66 books had to be changed to present Jesus in a certain divine way that was not actually original. Now here again, there is no evidence to support this theory at all. What takes place at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD is simply acknowledging what we call the canon, the 66 books of the Bible. They acknowledged that it was what had long since already been recognized from the beginning as the inspired word of God. Not only this, we've got early church fathers from the same timeline and well before. Irenaeus, 
Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Papias, all before 200 AD, all have the exact same view. Origen, another church father, has the same list of 27 New Testament books in 250 AD. Athanasius has the same list in 367 AD. But beyond that, I want to look at three specific holes in this overzealous monk argument. Hole number one is the manuscript hole. Fact, we have over 6,000 New Testament manuscripts. If you add in the Old Testament and look at all 66 books, we have over 20,000 manuscripts, total manuscripts, written as early as 25 years after the originals were written. Now you may say, okay, well that that sounds questionable to me. Um, Well, let's compare that to every other book and source that we have in all of history going back to that same time period. If you look at Julius Caesar's book, Gaelic Wars, we have less than 12 manuscripts, 6,000 New Testament, 20,000 total Old and New Testament. We have less than 12 copies of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Well, how do we know so much about Julius Caesar from the book Gallic Wars? Well, okay, what about Aristotle? Aristotle's poetics. Guys, we have less than 10 copies of Aristotle's poetics. Well, how do we know so much about Aristotle from Aristotle's poetics? What about Socrates? You know how many manuscripts we have of Socrates? Zero. We have no remaining manuscripts of Socrates. All that we know about Socrates comes from the writings of another guy named Plato. Okay, well, but I heard that we don't have any of the originals, the original originals of the New Testament. You're right. That's correct. We don't have the original paper that Matthew or Mark or Luke or John wrote out. Those original, the very moment that that pen hit that paper, we call those the original autographs. And those original autographs are inerrant, infallible, and inspired. What we have are the earliest written around 120 AD all the way up into the Middle Ages. So from 25 years after the original writing, we've got 6,000 manuscripts with internal corroboration, meaning that they say the same thing. Okay, so how does this compare to the other stuff? Again, let's go back. Julius Caesar, the very first copy that we have of Gallic Wars is written 100 years after the original. Aristotle's Poetics, the earliest copy that we have was written 1,400 years after the original. Socrates, what do we have? Nothing. Take another comparison. Homer's Iliad, the famous book Homer's Iliad, the earliest copy that we have is 2,100 years older than when it was originally written. And the interesting thing is no one questions any of those manuscripts. So the presuppositions that come into it affect everything. That's hole number one, the manuscript hole. Hole number two, the language hole. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, here's the problem, right? When you go to all nations, well, all nations speak a lot of different languages. So early on, by God's grace, as the message of the gospel is going out, in the first few centuries, we have the very first translations of the New Testament written in the languages of Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. 
So now, remember our overzealous monk argument. Now our overzealous monks have to find all of the manuscripts in Greek, the originals. Then they've got to steal all those manuscripts without getting caught. They've got to change all of them. Don't show your ink work. Put them back without being noticed. Then we also have to learn how to lie in Syriac, Coptic, and in Latin. We've got to go out. We've got to find all of the Syriac, all of the Coptic, all of the Latin translations. Change all of those manuscripts. Don't get caught in your ink work. Put them back without getting caught. You have to make all of those lies match all the original lies that you touched up in the Greek. But here's the third hole that makes it even more unlikely that this theory has any weight whatsoever. And that is the early church father's hole. You see, Bible, Bible scholar Bruce Metzger says this, 95 to 98% of the New Testament can be recreated through the writings of early church fathers. What does that mean? That means through the writings of just the early church fathers, we can reproduce all of the New Testament except 11 verses. So now this overzealous monk has to go out and find also all the writings of all the early church father. Change those. Don't show your ink work. Put them back without getting caught. Oh, and by the way, just the math on how long it would take, it would take more than 300 years just to accomplish that. Way more than in any single person's lifetime. Number three, they report supernatural events. The scripture says here that they report supernatural events. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 with me now in verses 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I love this because the Bible here records the voice of God Almighty speaking. It says on the holy mountain. It says the audible voice of God. And the person who is writing this, who is speaking here, this is Peter recounting the transfiguration, a historical event that took place in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and in Luke chapter 9. Well, how does Peter know anything about this? Because he was there, because he was an eyewitness along with John. By the way, just to think about it for a second, just add this in here. We are far too familiar with the phrase, God told me. God told me, you know, if, if we had any understanding of the significance and the power of the doctrine of revelation, the voice of God, we would never just throw that phrase out there. But I digress. So thinking again here, now this reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses is reporting supernatural events. Not only does it record the voice of God himself, it also records healings and miracles. You remember things like the story of the man with the withered hand in the Gospels, right? This is amazing. Jesus never even touches the guy. They wanted, the Pharisees wanted to catch Jesus working and breaking the, the Sabbath. And so Jesus literally says to this man, well, show me your hand. And the man looks at his hand and Jesus heals it without even touching him. Sort of looking at the Pharisees and going, well, now what are you going to get me for on that? 
Remember our stories, guys, from the last several weeks as we have been surveying from death to life all of these stories. We saw the woman who had an issue of bleeding for years and years and as she just touched the outer edge of Jesus' garment, that she was healed. Remember the story of the little girl who died and Jesus was too late, but Jesus was right on time in his timing and Jesus showed up and brought the little girl back to life. Remember the story of Jesus' friend, Lazarus, who also was dead and was too late, but in God's perfect, loving, sovereign timing, Jesus did it just that way so that people would see as eyewitnesses that only he could raise people from death to life. One of uh, Vodi's favorite uh, stories is when Jesus said, remember, I'll meet you on the other side of the lake. And so the disciples get in the boat and they they begin to cross out to the other side. And you can just imagine being there and one of the disciples looks at another in the boat and says, hey y'all, did did Jesus say how he was gonna meet us in the boat? No, he didn't say, why? Well, because he's coming. What do you mean he's coming? Man, he's coming, he's walking on the water. And Jesus walks out on the water. A miracle that they see as eyewitnesses and they're astounded. But remember the, the most important, we just celebrated it. Jesus Christ, dead, crucified on the cross, three days later, risen, alive forevermore, the greatest miracle of all time. And the Bible records this supernatural event and declares it to be true. Number four, that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. Look at now verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let me give you just one awesome example out of hundreds that we could choose as we look at the prophetic word in the Old and the New Testament being fulfilled. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, and also Mark chapter 15, verse 34, tell us one of the last things that Jesus says on the cross before he gives up his life. He says in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama, sabachthani, which in Greek translated into English means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus say that on the cross? Well, among other reasons, it was to fulfill prophecy given in the Old Testament. What do you mean? Let's go back to the Old Testament. If we were to go to Psalm chapter 22 and read chapter 22, verse one, it says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Continuing on, look at verses six through eight. I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Guys, Jesus was scorned. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was despised. This is literally what is being said to Jesus as he was being crucified. Keep going. Look at Psalm chapter 22. This is verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The Bible here in the Old Testament says, poured out like water and that my heart melts. Blood and water flowed from Jesus' side when he was stabbed. Evidence of hypovolemic shock, to use modern day terms. It says his tongue had dried up. Jesus said on the cross, I thirst. And he refused their wine vinegar that they offered for his thirst. It says dogs surround me. Dogs is a term in Old and New Testament for the Gentiles. And Jesus was surrounded by Gentiles, surrounded by Roman soldiers. It goes on to say surrounded by evil men. Jesus was crucified between two transgressors. The kicker, it says pierced my hands and feet. Jesus nailed hand and foot to a cross. It says, I can count all my bones. Jesus' legs weren't broken like they always did. When Roman soldiers performed a crucifixion, they would break the legs of the person being crucified in order to confirm death. But because Jesus gave up his life so quickly, they didn't break his legs, which is why instead they stabbed him in his side. Finally, it says they cast lots for my clothing. The soldiers literally cast lots for Jesus' clothes. Now, what's so amazing about that? Well, this, it was written by King David a thousand years before Jesus Christ came to earth. It was written by King David, a man who never saw a crucifixion in his life because it hadn't been invented yet. And we could do this exact same procedure and look at something like Isaiah chapter 53, which was written 700 years before Jesus ever comes to earth. Number five, fifth and finally, it claims that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. The Bible claims that its writings are divine rather than human in origin. Look finally at verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible here claims to be divine rather than human in origin. You know, my kids and I together, we are memorizing every morning at the breakfast table, we're memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number 15 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this, who wrote the Bible? And the, the answer that they have begun to memorize is this, chosen men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Chosen men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look further in scripture. Revelation chapter 22 verses 18 and 19 says, if anyone adds or subtracts from this book of prophecy, God will subtract you. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17 says, all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The Bible claims to be divine rather than human in origin. And guys, this is where a lot of people drop off. I can't go there. I can't go there and believe that this is the word of God himself. Well, see, this is exactly where the Bible goes. It is exactly what it says. Thus says the Lord is throughout Old and New Testament. 
You say, no, it's unreliable because men wrote the books. Okay, if you believe that, then go home and burn every book that you have on your shelf because last time I checked, every book ever written was written by the hand of a man or a woman. So you've got to be intellectually honest and consistent. You may say, well, I'm a person of science, a person of science. Okay, let's talk about that. If you want to engage current conversations um, about science uh, and the existence of the, idea, or the idea of the existence of a creator, let me specifically point uh, you towards the intelligent design movement. This is a modern, current, contemporary conversation that's fascinating that allows you to discuss the idea of science and what it suggests or implies about the idea that there was a creator, an intelligent designer. But to specifically discuss relating to this question of why I choose to believe the Bible, here's why it makes no sense to bring in the scientific method. Okay, in order to use the scientific method, this is building block 101, it must be observable, measurable, and repeatable. For science to have any part of the conversation, it must be observable, measurable, and repeatable. You don't use the, the scientific method to prove historical events. Just like you can't prove scientifically that George Washington was the first president. Why? Because it's not observable. It's not measurable and it's not repeatable. So you're having the wrong conversation in order to make an objection. Okay, so what objection should you make to the idea of I choose to believe the Bible? Well, you should use the evidentiary method as in a courtroom setting. Well, what kind of things would you want to bring in then? I don't know. Maybe witnesses who are reliable, whose stories are corroborated. Maybe 66 books written in three different languages on three different continents by 40 different authors over the space of 1,500 years with astounding internal consistency and even more astounding external corroboration from early church fathers and even secular contemporary historians of the time. Maybe 23,000 archaeological digs. Guys, take a look one more time. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. As maybe this is new to you, and maybe as you hear these things, the Lord is pressing upon your heart. This is a call to faith, guys. This is a reminder as we consider the reality of what the Bible says and the reality that the Bible is reliable. The call is clear. Call upon Jesus, who is the morning star, says this passage. Guys, faith in Jesus is not blind and it's not ignorant, but we still have to come to Jesus in faith, in personal, genuine faith and say, God, I recognize that you are real, that your word is true. I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I'm in need of the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide through his death and resurrection on the cross. And today I'm laying that burden of sin down. I'm making you, Jesus, the Lord of my life. I'm taking myself off the throne of my own life. Guys, we have to trust and believe in the free gift of salvation that Jesus has offered to us here in his scripture. 
If you've never done that before, let me encourage you even today, today is the day to bow the knee to King Jesus. His word is true. And fellow believers, be encouraged that what you believe by faith, it's not an ignorant faith. It's a powerful faith. God is good. And Second Peter reminds us of why he is so good. Let's take a moment and let's close in prayer. And then let's finish just being able to worship that God and declare how great and how good is our God. Let's pray.